Tonight we're going to be studying culture and biblical interpretation. There is a whole branch of theology and biblical studies called hermeneutics. And that is the fancy word for interpretation or how to interpret the Bible. And I am just going to be looking at one sliver of that as it affects looking at the Bible with respect to our culture. So how does our culture, how should our culture influence our understanding of what the Bible says? So this is uh, what I'm going to be attempting to address this evening. And because we're talking about cultural issues It can be a touchy subject, so uh, I am going to touch on a touchy subject, and I hope that you will bear with me and be patient with me as I uh, go through that, but I hope that it will be helpful in understanding and approaching the Scripture as we try to understand what God has revealed to us. So culture and biblical interpretation. The first thing I want to cover is this. I want us to remember some important truths about God. Now, this goes back to some of our initial studies on the supremacy of the Word of God. So you're going to have to think back on it, but um, if you don't remember, that's all right. These these truths, I think, are are pretty uh, standalone here, and they're important for us to remember. So uh, you'll see what I mean as we go on. So the first important thing that we want to remember is this, that God is the primary author of Scripture. God is the primary author of Scripture. Not Mark, not Matthew, not uh, Isaiah, not Moses. God is the primary author of Scripture. So that is, in, that, that is uh, very, very important for us to come to grips with. He is the God who revealed himself, who inspired his men to write these words for us. They are the instruments, but God is the primary author. And so this is really important. This is critical as we approach Scripture. The second thing that is important is this. And this, to me, just always stands out as remarkable, amazing. And it is only God who can bring it about. And it is this truth, that God used the circumstances, the history, the people, and their personalities to inspire Scripture. In other words, they didn't fall into a trance, and then God just kind of, boop, put all of his words into their head, and then, you know, while in a trance, they just kind of transcribe everything. That is not how God had, has chosen to reveal his word. He used real people in a real situation with real personalities, and he just kind of orchestrated all that for them to reveal his word. So, If Ezekiel was a go-getter, for example, God used that personality in Ezekiel to reveal his word for us. If Isaiah was rich and privileged, God used that position of his in order to reveal the scripture to us. If Jeremiah was sensitive and compassionate and non-confrontational, God used that about Jeremiah in his situation and circumstances to reveal his word to us. You guys see where I'm going with this? Elijah's ministry rose out of a nation that was entrenched in Baal worship and had corrupt politicians. God used Elijah in that circumstance and situation to reveal himself to us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote in a unique time in history when Jesus, the Son of God, became a man and lived among us. What an incredible thing that was. So, 
God used the people in their situations and circumstances. He used their personalities. He used how they were in order to reveal himself to mankind. And this is so important. And it is amazing. Only God can do that. Now, more importantly, as we consider this topic tonight, and uh, maybe we don't always kind of think about this, but the point, the truth is this, that God knows about every culture. You understand what I'm saying? You believe that? He knew the culture back then. He knew the culture right now. He knew every culture. He knows every culture that has ever existed. He knows the culture of every people in every period of time uh, throughout history, no matter where they lived. He is aware of culture. He knows about it. He knows how people think, how they act, how they live together. He knows about it all. So, God, as the primary author, this is going to be really important, especially as we approach Scripture and we decide how we're going to interpret some of the things that it says. Because uh, what happens is that a lot of people in our day, not only in our day, but this is true throughout history, they want to go to the Bible and they say, well, you know, um, uh, Isaiah was just writing about something that was happening in his time and is just not relevant to us anymore. And, and that might be the conclusion that you arrive at if Isaiah is the primary author of the book of Isaiah. But who is the primary author of Isaiah? God is. God knows about Isaiah. God knew about his time. God knew about the culture back then. And he also knew about our culture today, at that time. So, God is the primary author. He knows every culture of every people in every place in every time in history. And so the inspiration of Scripture that we have springs from God's infinite knowledge through the limited periods in history of the inspired author. So this is amazing. This is, this is phenomenal. Nobody could pull this off. Only God can do what he has done in revealing his word to us. So, when we look at the Bible again, and we think of Isaiah, or we think of Paul, for example, what God intended through Paul is the primary question, as opposed to what Paul thought about what Paul was writing at the time. Paul is just the instrument. God is the primary author. And where does that leave us in the end? Well, we have an eternally relevant Word of God. This is an eternally relevant Word, because God is the author. So, these are some points that I made going back to our initial studies on the supremacy of the Word of God. It is unlike any other book throughout the history of mankind. All right? So, that is our first point there, that the, the important truths that I want us um, to remember. So, that brings us to our second point this evening. And it is an encouragement to us, then, to hold fast to scriptural truths. Hold fast to scriptural truths. If it is God who has inspired his men to write, and it has come to us, then it is his word to us, and we want to hold on to it as tightly, as firmly as we can. And uh, culturally speaking, we do not want to change scripture and our understanding of what it says based on cultural norms, our current way of thinking about right and wrong, or tradition of people, our traditions. We don't want 
to allow those things to decide how we are going to interpret Scripture. I want to give you an example. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. And it's uh, for people who really loved God's Word back then in Jesus' time. It is really amazing what it says here in this passage about what they were doing. So this is Matthew chapter 15. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 6. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So the Pharisees are confronting the, uh, Jesus about the disciples and something that they are doing. Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, and he goes on uh, to quote Isaiah. So this is, this is pretty amazing. What is more fundamental than the Ten Commandments, right? And so the, what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing in order to, I guess, um, maybe to show themselves as being more spiritual than everybody else. They were neglecting one of the Ten Commandments for the sake of giving an extra offering. And so Jesus confronts them about that. It is a classic example of current cultural expectations and norms being imposed upon them, whether they're doing it willingly or just peer pressure, in order to circumvent one of the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother in order that they can do whatever they thought they were supposed to do. And so Jesus confronts them about that. They should not have been changing or modifying or adjusting the Ten Commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. They should have instead been adjusting their practices at the time. The Ten Commandments. Nothing is more fundamental than that. And yet, they were, they were putting it aside in order to allow their way of thinking. Now, this would be akin to us today allowing ideas about substance use and abuse or homosexuality or adultery or any other sin of cultural standards to, because they are culturally accepted or whatever, to cloud or to cause us to adjust our understanding of the Bible in order to accommodate those sinful practices. That's what the Pharisees were doing, and that's what people do today, right? It's like because something is accepted in our society, there is the temptation and the, 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 the appeal, or there's a draw, to change what the Bible says or to change the understanding of what the Bible says in order to accommodate the sinful practice. And... Uh, they were doing it in Jesus' day. People are doing it today. And we have to be, a, we have to be careful about doing this. This is, it's backwards. It's not the way that God intended for it to go. So we don't want to take our culture and impose it on what God intended in revealing Scripture to us. Now, let me give you a non-threatening kind of example 
But uh, we all know about Jonah and the whale, right? We all know the account of Jonah and the whale. Or was it Jonah and a big fish? Well, what was it? Uh, yeah, yeah, what was it? I don't know. A whale or a fish? Who knows? So, uh, so here's how it goes. Jonah was swallowed some, by some big watery thing, right, in the water. Maybe it was a big eel. I don't know what it was. And so we say, well, it says fish, which it does in the text. It says Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, which is what it says. But um, so, we say, so we say today that it could not have been a whale because it says it was a fish, and we all know that whales are not fish, right? All right, so that's kind of how the reasoning goes. But what's happening is we are taking modern scientific classification systems and imposing it on other possible classification systems. For example, a fish could be anything that lives in the water exclusively and swims around. Right? Is that wrong? Well, you know, you might say, well, you know, Pastor Ray, you're just kind of ignorant about things and you're not very scientific. And... But honestly, there isn't just one classification system. So what we're doing is we're taking modern scientific classification systems and we're imposing it upon another classification system that is equally viable, even though we might not like it or agree with it. So, was it a whale? It could have been a whale, which is a fish. You understand what I'm saying? So, uh, just a silly example. If whale or fish, whatever it was, God made it to swallow Jonah, right? I mean, because even a whale, there's a problem with even whales swallowing people, for three days. So God is behind the whole thing. But, but the point is this. We, we mustn't be so hard and fast about us being right that we superimpose what, what we think upon the Scriptures and what it, it says. It's, it's like, and this was a problem in the early missionary movements, which is something that missionaries have had to deal with in the meantime. It is Western thinking going to a country like Africa and imposing our morality and their, our practices upon them. Now, that's kind of what we tend to do. I mean, because after all, right, our way is the best way. Who, who would question that, right? That's kind of sarcastic there. You see what he was saying? But that's how we are as people. We tend to think our way is the best way and the only way. And uh, it causes friction and trouble between you know, us as individuals in all areas of life. So the point, though, is this. When we're coming to Scripture, it is very easy for us to take our ideas and to put them on Scripture, which God wants us to take Scripture and kind of impose it upon our ideas. And so that's why I say it's a little bit backwards. So we want to be cognizant of this or aware of this when we're coming to Scripture. The Scripture is here, revealed by God, to inform us about our lives and how we need to fix it. It's not the other way around. We're, we're, we shouldn't go to Scripture looking for what we want to hear. There's a, there's a phrase that the Bible uses for those who want to hear they want to hear, right? Does anybody happen to know what that phrase is? Yeah, tickling or itching ears. Right, there you go. Um, and again, we're not talking about anything new. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to people anyways. Um, People have always wanted to hear what they want to hear, and they go to Scripture. It's like, you know, you just say, okay, Lord, I just want you to show me. And you open it, whoop, and close your eyes, and you just kind of point, and you start, you start reading until you get to a place where it tells you what you want to hear kind of thing. 
So uh, we just want to be careful not to do that. Now, when we come to the New Testament, especially in the epistles of the New Testament, what we have is these letters that are written by Peter and Paul and James and others that is meant to correct the church about wrong ways of thinking and wrong beliefs and, and just wrong practices that, that they're engaging in. And so the, the epistles serve primarily as correct, correctives to wrong beliefs and practices. And so when we read them, we can come to them, and, 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 and so often, you know, the, the, the relationship between what it says and our lives is pretty obvious. It's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. We can understand that. But there are always those places uh, that uh, are a little bit touchy and sensitive and sticky. So I want to look at a couple of those as examples, and um, I want us to consider these. The first one's easy. It's not a, it's not a, a big deal, but um, it'll kind of set the stage for the second one, which is a little bit more difficult. Does anybody have any, any questions so far or comments? Okay. All right. So our first example is this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right. So there are a couple of verses here, like 1 Corinthians 16, 20. This, is, this appears four times in the New Testament. Four times in the New Testament. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, the question is, should we go around kissing one another? Now, usually when you're thinking about this... Now, by the way, I grew up, I grew up in a, in a uh, home. My grandfather, not being from the United States, we greeted each other with a kiss. That, that was just how we grew up. It was... We didn't think of anything about it, and, and, uh, and that was great. It was fine. Um, however, here in the United States and other places, that's not so practiced anymore, and there are these four things. Now, the question is, what do you do with this? It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, what are we supposed to do? And you usually come across something that says it this way. It says something along these lines, that this holy kiss was a traditional form of greeting in that day. But if we went around kissing everyone we met in most modern settings, it would send an entirely different message. Now, would you disagree with what he's saying there? Well, no, he's not. We wouldn't disagree with that. And so we we just kind of, in this case, it's pretty obvious because, you know, none of us want to go around kissing everybody else anyways, right? So it's kind of obvious. So we take this, you know, question, this, this comment, this kind of comment, we say, okay. But there's a problem with doing this, because what we're doing is we're taking our cultural standard, and we are imposing it upon what the scripture says here, namely, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, whether or not we agree or disagree with this, this is what we're doing. We don't want to greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm okay to hug you, and I'm okay to shake your hand and pat you on the back, but don't, don't kiss me, right? That's reserved for one. So, um, so we're, we're happy to kind of escape because it's not accepted culturally. We're happy to escape from this by giving it a cultural uh, interpretation. But instead, we have to do something else. We, we, cannot, we cannot take a cultural practice and impose it upon Scripture because if we're free to do it here, we're going to do it in other places where we should not be so free. So we have to come at it a little bit different. We have to study. We have to start by studying the context in which it is given, and then move 
from there to our interpretations. And so we have to ask some questions when we're considering this. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I might just still be taking my cultural feelings and imposing it upon the text. But we have to start asking questions. What does the context suggest in which this greet one another with a holy kiss occur? What is at stake for kissing or not kissing? Right? What's at stake? What are the principles, if any, that are in play? So these are the kinds of questions that we want to ask. And if we end up still free to put aside the holy kiss, then good. But if not, then maybe we need to adjust our way of thinking. So, rather than saying it was a common greeting back then, that we are not supposed to practice it today, instead, we look at it and we say, well, I don't think that there are any moral or truth issues at stake here with greeting or not greeting, with a holy kiss. Maybe the principle that stands out is this. Greet Christians, greet one another with warmth and affection, reflecting the love of Jesus. Right? That maybe is the principle that is at play here. And the actual kiss is irrelevant. Are you see what I'm, what I'm doing? What I'm doing with this? Now, um, again, you know, if you feel, if you're okay with a kiss, you know, there's nothing wrong with a friendly, non-intimate kind of greeting that way. There, there's nothing wrong with that. And I say that out of, you know, personal experience and history in my own family. And I also say it from, uh, you know, a culture that, that might not be so accepted. But, but, you know, even in our culture, you have some groups of people, like uh, maybe some uh, younger females, that give air kisses to one another. You know, how are you doing? You know, just kind of in the air next to each other. So, you know, there's this kind of thing that's going on in our society and culture and adjustments and, and uh, just kind of different things in the way that we greet one another. And so, you know, maybe this is what this is talking about here. And we're not necessarily obliged to follow the kiss because in these passages, they are, when it says greet one another with a holy kiss, Paul is not offering a corrective to something that was happening. He is, it is in parts of his letter where he's just sharing with them, greeting, you know, greet so-and-so and, and, you know, it's just greeting. And so greet one another with a holy kiss. He might be just reflecting the need for Christians to warmly greet one another. And I think that that is important. Uh, Maybe a little bit more, especially, you know, we're supposed to love our enemies and, you know, all of that kind of a thing. Um, Maybe there's a lot of tensions. We're people, right? So there's going to be tensions between people. and, And Paul wants us to overcome that in Christ. And there needs to be more than just a you know, like, I see you, but I don't want to talk to you too much kind of thing. We have to overcome those kinds of things and have a true, sincere, uh, uh, warm, compassionate, in Christ kind of greeting. That's what we're being encouraged to hear. All right, so that's my attempt at that one. That was the easy one. Now we get to the really, really hard one. But here it goes. So, you know, the next one is this, the role of women. How are we to take this? There are some difficult passages in the New Testament that grate against our sensibilities, our modern sensibilities. Let me share some of these verses 
with you. So we have 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. It says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. So, you know, we might be tempted to turn to a verse like that and say, See, Pastor, look at that. Nobody believes this anymore. This is outdated. This is, this is Paul's own uh, anti-female position. Well, it gets better. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let the older women admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, this is pretty tough. Um, this is a pretty tough passage in our society today. There was, I, I've used this example before, but it just has always stood out to me. There was an author. Her name was um, Christine Marshall, Kath Marshall, something Marshall, Catherine Marshall. Or, she wrote to the Christie, the book Christie, which was subsequently made into a uh, kind of a miniseries by, you know, I think it was produced by Southern Baptists. Honestly, and it was a good show. I, I mean, I enjoyed watching them, except for the introduction every week. You know, every, every week that the, uh, the introduction played, Christy, who is a young lady who goes onto the mission field, says every time <laughs> in the introduction, I want my life to count more than staying home and having babies. As, as if staying home and having babies was just not good enough. And that's where our culture is at. Uh, we, we have kind of devalued the things that God has valued. And so a verse like this just kind of, ah, okay, I love my children, but I don't know about that guy. You know, things like that. You know, it's, it's just we kind of adjust it, and, and uh, we have to be careful with that. Anyway, there's, there's some more. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man but to be in silence. And then there's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. So the, the way that we approach these in our modern day, because this is contrary to our, our current situation with the roles of men and women and so on and so forth, uh, we come and say, well, you know, these are cultural verses. They reflect what was going on in Paul's day. And so Paul was writing, you know, as to the situation of his culture at that day, at that time. And they are not meant to be applicable to us. So that's kind of the way that we explain this away. But again, remember, we have to be careful of imposing our cultural situation and norms and traditions upon Scripture. It's supposed to be the other way around. So how do we handle something like this? Well, first of all, let me just say, and this is going to be just a cursory look at Scripture, that the Bible never presents women in an inferior situation or to be ordered about by the whim of men or servants or slaves or property in any way. The Bible just does not present women in that way. It is a false statement to say that, well, a culture might have abused 
abused women and cultures today may abuse women. As a matter of fact, I think there's an uproar among women in Iran right now currently taking place. But uh, I'm not saying that society and cultures have not abused women and have handled things wrong, but the Bible does never, never purports that kind of action or that kind of view towards women. To the contrary. Now, some of these examples, there's kind of a negative thing going on, but it still shows, it just, it still shows how, um, how prominent and how significant a role women take throughout the Bible. So we go throughout the Bible and we think we see these kinds of things. So Adam listened to Eve and took the apple. You see what's happening? His, his wife is the one who is instigating and making the move, even though it's a wrong situation for sure. But, but you know, if, if women were property or, or something, there would be like just a complete shutdown of it. Don't, I'm not going to listen to you. What are you. Why are you even talking to me kind of thing? Um, so Adam listened to Eve, even when it was in direct violation of what God had told them. Abraham listened to Sarah's suggestion about an heir, and there's a whole dynamic between Abraham and Sarah and uh, their family and all that kind of thing. Isaac and Rebekah contended with each other about their children. Jacob went to great lengths to pay the dowry for his wives. Now, paying the dowry is a very common thing throughout uh, you know, many cultures, and uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And Jacob, he... He, he spends 20 years to pay the dowry for his wives. That's pretty significant. And uh, if wives were less valuable or women were less valuable and property and all of that, um, this kind of thing, it would have been very differently uh, described. Jacob demonstrated great love for his wife, Rachel. Great love for her. He loved Rachel, and it is clear when you read the text. Deborah was one of the judges, respected and shared with uh, uh, Balak as one of the judges of Israel. Moses received the rebuke of his wife in one particular instance as they were coming out of Egypt. Naomi and Ruth are admired and respected, even though they were utterly poor. Now, if, if any women had the, you know, the chance of being you know, shoved down or put aside by society, it would have been Naomi and Ruth because they had nothing and they were foreigners. Well, Ruth was anyways. So, uh, but that's not, how, that's not how it's presented. They are admired and respected, even though they were poor. The king's lineage, this is really fascinating here, the king's lineage is described including the mother's names. It's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, it says king so-and-so, his mother was so-and-so. Or, and in one, in, uh, in one example, the king banishes his grunt grandmother because she is practicing and leading the nation in practicing um, false worship, pagan worship. So it, it, it shows that she was uh, having a significant influence upon the, na- the nation of Israel. Um, Vashti and Esther in the book of Esther, exerted significant influence on the nation. So Vashti is, is, that, is told by Ahasuerus to do something, and she refuses. So that frightened us, freaked out all the guys. And uh, they said, we can't allow this to happen. Uh, if, if, uh, if we allow this to, to, go, uh, to go without saying anything, then all the women in the nation are going to rebel against their husbands, and it's going to be a mess. So if the women were not already ready to revolt against their husbands at the drop of a hat, then Vashti's actions wouldn't have been so significant, but they were. 
It reflects that women, and this is really important, um, women are people too, right? It's just strange. I have to say it that way. But sometimes I think we think that women in the past or women in other places were just dumb and ignorant and couldn't do anything or just, you know, just, you know, just like blobs there. You know, that's kind of the impression that we get, but it's not true at all, ever. Women are people too. And we can't just assume that women just bore it, uh, you know, without thinking or feeling about their circumstances and the abuse that they were experiencing or any, anything like that. Women today wouldn't take it. Women anywhere else wouldn't take it either. So, um, now, I understand, you know, women sometimes will remain in abusive situations, and I'm not talking about the abuses of all of these things. I'm talking about the way that we're presented. Uh, it's all presented in Scripture. So, people are people, Men and women are men and women. We are people. We are the same in every age and culture and place. And we have the same reactions today as anybody else ever had anywhere else. So, uh, and going back to Vashti and Esther, Esther in particular was used by God to save the people, the Jewish people. And they celebrate it to this day. Esther was used. The book of Proverbs makes much the role of the wife and mother. Just read the book of Proverbs. There is no distinction there. It is significant. Men and women, the husbands and the wives, the fathers and the mothers. The Song of Solomon extols the virtues of a romantic love, which is not a characteristic of society that demeans women. In Hosea, even though Gomer is sold as a slave and acts like a prostitute, there is a respectful pursuit and redemption by Hosea at God's command, which is meant to reflect the redemption that we experience through Jesus Christ. It's remarkable. The Gospels mention and speak of women only in positive terms of all of the women that engaged with Jesus in his life. And there was more than one. It was significant. And they are mentioned. The book of Acts speaks of the growth of the church in terms of men and women. I was kind of surprised to find this, but there it is. You can search for women in the book of Acts and you'll see it reflects the church and it always says the men and the women in whatever is happening. Timothy and Titus extol the virtues of godly women. So this is the biblical perspective of men and women and the role and the worth of women and men and and so on and so forth. We are made in the image of God, men and women. And that is how the Bible presents it. So when we come to these passages in the New Testament, and here is something that is very interesting and very important for us to consider. So going back to Titus, let me bring up this verse again. Going back to Titus chapter 2, verse 5. It says that they, the older women, admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now listen, this is in the epistles, and this is not a statement about current affairs at the time of Paul. If Women at the time of Paul did these things if they loved their husbands and they loved their children and they were discreet and chaste and homemakers and good and obedient to their own husbands. Paul would not have had to encourage them to be like this and to say, make sure you do it so the word of God is not blasphemed. He is not making a a cultural statement here. He is giving a corrective 
to the people at that time because they were not loving their husbands. They were not loving their children. They were not discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. They were not like that. And Paul had to tell them they needed to be like this. So it is a corrective. So what does this mean then for us? This particular topic is just one example. I know it was fire, a fiery example. Some of you may even be cringing out there. But it is an example of when we come to Scripture that sometimes we have to approach Scripture with the intent of allowing God to speak to us and to change our lives. And sometimes it's very hard. What we're being told is very hard to do, but that's the purpose. We don't want to come to Scripture taking what we like and excusing everything else. That is just wrong. That is, a, that is bad Christianity right there. Picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like. We have to approach, approach the whole Scripture and allow God, as he revealed it to, it, to us, to change our lives. That, that is our goal, to be changed by the Word of God. All right? So, I hope uh, none of you are mad at me now and think I'm crazy or whatever. But um, we want to remember that when we come to the, the Word of God, it is special, it is unique, it is unlike any other book. It is not just a book, it is God's Word to us. We have to study it, and it's hard work to study. If you remember some of the things that we talked about, Over the last few weeks, it's very challenging sometimes to study the Word of God, but we have to struggle with it. We have to study it in its context, historically, grammatically, scripturally, theologically, and we have to wrestle with the truths that that are revealed to us, and we have to adjust our lives by it. That, That is the process. Allow it to change us, not make us fix it and make it better. That's not what we want to do. So let us wrestle with the scriptures and adjust our lives. Some of it may be hard, and we can't do it in our own strength. We have to allow God's spirit to work through us and to strengthen us and to guide us into all truth. So that is, uh, that is there, there are, I got a list here of other cultural things I could have talked about. But uh, anyway, does anybody have any, any thoughts or questions as we wrap this up? Any comments? Yeah, well...